Well, let's take a moment, let's pray, and we'll jump in and get started. Thank you, Father, for uh, the mercy that you give us always, and pray, God, that you would enlighten our study of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We switch out. Music stands here, that one's a little flimsy, here we go. So if you would, take out the paper known as the Shema. I want to read through it. I want to draw your attention to some things that are very important. Yes. Okay. No, it's good. We will get her one. Here we are. Absolutely. Here you go. Okay. And here's what we need to know about the Shema. Number one, the Shema... Are, is, is, is comprised of three sections of Scripture that were put together and were recited twice a day by the men of Israel, once in the morning, once in the evening. It is bookended on both sides by prayers that were offered up that are not Scripture, but they were common in Jewish custom and society at that time. Uh, last week I recommended two books for you, uh, the most um, pertinent one probably to what we're looking at is is a book known as uh what was it called sketches of jewish mitch what was that book from uh what was it called who had it down i'm sorry i left it in my what's it what was the name of the book last week sketches sketches of jewish social life is what it was by a guy named alfred edersheim okay e-d-e-r S-H-E-I-M, probably. Yeah, I before E except after C, but if you're Jewish, then it's E-I, maybe. I don't remember the grammatical rule for that, but something like that. And then another one that would also help you, especially in your understanding of the culture that was going on in the Gospels, is The Life and Times of Jesus Christ. Uh, both of those are helpful books. Both of those are well worth investing any money in. He is, he's a very brilliant mind and has a very good understanding of that, so... Uh, but what we're looking at here in the Shema is the reciting of the creed, essentially, of Israel. This was considered the most important prayer that a Jewish person could possibly pray. And does anybody remember why we talked about that it was the men that were commissioned to recite this twice a day? The, the men are the leaders of the home. As the men go... So the, so the family goes is the idea. And so here's what we're going to go through. Uh, and, and let me just tell you real quick. Everybody see in, in verse 4 there at the very beginning the word hear? The word hear means not just listen carefully, but also obey. And again, you're familiar with this in dealing with children. When you say you better listen, it's not that they're having some sort of auditory receptor difficulty. It's the fact that their bodies are not functioning with what their ears are intaking, and so it's really an obedience problem is what we're dealing with. It's no different for Israel, okay? Uh, well, here's some things I want you to see if you weren't able to mark them or you didn't have it last week. Number one, the idea of hearing or being obedient. Those are important factors that you want to mark. Number two, the idea of generational uh, uh, constituency. I don't know how you want to say that, but the idea of sons and grandsons, which it's going to look like as it trickles down the pipe in your family tree. The third thing I want you to look for is also dealings with the heart. That's important. And, and because here's what we're going to see. Unless teaching gets in the heart, the life doesn't change. Or let's say it this way. You've got to be, you have got to be convinced of a greater truth 
in order to be different. So everybody knows it's illegal to yell out fire, right? And why is that? Because what does it do? It causes a chaos and a panic. People get trampled. People get needlessly hurt. Everybody's running for the exits and they're out. If I told you a fire was going on right now down that hallway, would you believe me? Why? What have I done to make you think that I'm such a liar? Okay, it's what? Yeah, but if I had that excitement, if I had that Laverne-esque uh, uh, drive, oh my gosh, there's a fire! If I said it like that, what would happen? Would you be Would you be more convinced? What if I'm still not telling the truth? If you ever need help, call fire, not help. People don't want to help you, but people will run away from a fire. Very interesting. So you have got to be convinced. There is something that has to convince you. Your heart has to be penetrated, and it has to be overcome with the idea of, this has got to be the direction that I go. Because whatever is in wait for me, or whatever is of danger, will overcome me. The heart has to be convinced. This is true of all of life. I'm becoming acutely aware of how important it is to teach my son's heart of what needs to happen. Not just tell him, do this, don't do this, because I said so type stuff. It's not going to work with him. But what needs to happen is a greater truth needs to be convincing him of different behavior. It's no different with Israel here. And let's be honest, it's no different with us in the Christian life. So here we go, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, uh, Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And that's what we're going to focus on today is the word one, but let's keep going. You shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart, there it is, mark it, with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, there it is again. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, there it is, those that come after you, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It shall come about if you, mark this, listen obediently, notice it's together like that, to my commandments which I am commanding you today, to love Yahweh your Elohim and to serve him with all of your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them or the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain on, and, and, sorry, and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which Yahweh is giving you. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals, very good word, frontals, on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, 
talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, Speak to thee. Sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And notice Mark generations there as well. Generations qualifies as the same concept as teaching sons. This is something that is to become part and parcel of the culture of how the family runs. It shall be a tassel, verse 39, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh so as to do them. Mark that. That goes the same with the hear and the listen obediently. And not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments. There it is again. And be holy, be set apart to your Elohim. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your Elohim. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Now, did anybody do the homework in between last week and this week of putting together the similarities from passage to passage, from verse to verse? The idea, did you see that? And you see the connections. Why do you think that if this is what comprises the Shema, the listen and obey narrative for Israel, that the men were to recite it twice a day, that it was to be something that they had memorized always on their hearts that they're offering up. It conducts and leads how they do everything. It was meant to penetrate their heart to determine how they live. Why do you think that you have in these three passages that are put together is this a repetition like that? Express importance? Let me ask you this, ladies, how many times this week do you have to tell your husbands to take out the trash? Does it always work once? No, in fact, I told my wife I would take out the trash before I left for church, and I did it. Now, luckily, she's got something going on, so hopefully I can get home and do it before she gets back home. Um, But it takes more than one time, doesn't it? How many times have you had to tell a child to do something different? It never, three, four, five, and we just keep going. It's almost like a bidding war happens on that question, doesn't it? On and on and on. Would it not be the same with just people in general? See, the thing that frustrates us about children the most is they act just like me. That's what, that's what kills me. That's what Beth says. I don't doubt it. She probably, she would never say that about me, but she probably thinks it. All right. So notice the whole idea here is listen, be obedient. It's got to penetrate your heart, and you want this to shape the culture and to trickle down through all of your generations. This is meant to be family tree altering is the idea. It is meant to completely shift the dynamic of how everybody thinks. Now, here's why this is interesting. Where are the children of Israel while this is going on? Do we know? Where are they at? They're about to enter the promised land. They are about to see what God had promised them that they would receive all the way back to Abram, right? We called one guy. We made this one promise to him. But it all trickles down to his children for fulfillment. They're getting ready to take that. 
They saw, if they, if they were 20 and under, they saw their parents fail at obeying God. So they have a very real, sharp life lesson that is to be convincing on the heart in that direction. Does everybody see how important this is? And so they're standing here, and Moses is talking with them, and they're probably able to look out over his shoulder and see the land that they're getting ready to go into. So Moses has got to prepare the mind, listen, Life has got to be different. Isn't this one of the greatest frustrations in the church when you see your brother and sister in Christ in sin? Well, it was a frustration for Moses with the Israelites as well. You are not to live like the pagans. You have a God who rescues you. Guess what? Those other gods didn't rescue those people. You have a God who loves you and is willing to teach you. And if you obey him, his wisdom will shine through you as a beacon of light to the pagan nations around you this is maximum witnessing glory to god potential and so this whole thing is the idea of propositioning the family to be changed so that it becomes a radiator of god's glory to people now this is difficult for us to grasp sometimes and the reason is is because in american culture the family has broken it is broken down it is broken down successively Spent six years watching it over and over and over with every kid that stepped foot in the church where I was at. Every kid, broken home. My aunt's raising me. My grandmother is raising me. My great-grandmother is raising me. A lot of times what you found out is actually they weren't raising them at all. It was their slightly older brother or sister that was raising them, that was watching after them, that was trying to keep them out of trouble and drugs and all of this stuff. It's rampant today. The breakdown, and this is why Satan wants to attack the family. Satan wants to attack the family because if he can break down the structure of mom and dad and kids, the next thing you know, he unravels the inner workings of the culture. The family is actually the preservative of the culture. Why? Because just by its physical makeup, take some people who don't even believe in Jesus, okay? Just by its physical makeup, You cannot deny its structure. You cannot deny the roles that are naturally gravitated towards. You can't deny the fact that you've got to have a man and a woman in order to get a reproduction. You see what I'm saying? Creation, design, testifies to its significance. Because here we're seeing it it in two different different areas. Everybody familiar with, with China? And we talk about the million-man army. Anybody know how they get that way? Because they're killing all their girls. When their baby girls are born, they're putting them to death. I don't remember what the percentage is, but there's not too many that are making it. Well, guess what's going to happen? That society is going to die. Why? You need girls to keep going. Right? And everybody learned this in health class in seventh grade. We get it. How can the Chinese be so smart they don't get it? Or is it because they bought into a socialist idea that has so penetrated their hearts that has convinced them of something that when you draw it out to its logical conclusion, it actually violates God's given design? Does everybody see the ramifications of that? So notice, that's one extreme to go about with killing children. The next thing you know, you can't populate your society. The other thing that we see happening here is the homosexual upheaval that's happening right now. 
It's been closely linked with the idea of race. That way you can't say anything about it. Well, you wouldn't say that to a black person, would you? The black person isn't doing what you're doing. It's a completely different thing. So we see this happening. We see that it's being heavily promoted. If you don't agree with it, we're going to name call you. We're going to back you into a corner. Um, I can't tell you how many numerous people that I've talked with that have said, I've had to withdraw myself from certain social situations just because everything has been positioned strategically to go in that direction. It is, a, it is Get this, guys. It is a wave that is going to come against the church to where sin is going to become the new normal. And if you don't agree with it, they've already started this stuff. It is hate speech. As the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we've even got evangelicals that are coming out and rationalizing all of this stuff. No, it's not really like that. In fact, interesting, I don't remember where it was, uh, Charlie Clough who was here. You guys liked him? By the way, I got a lot of his teachings that are out there now. They came in, so I put them out there on the table for you guys if you want to take them. They're free. Uh, he actually sent me a video about the evangelicals that uh, George Soros has funded. They actually have a rent an evangelical program where they will pay an evangelical so much money in order to uh, uh, kind of represent the religious side of the agenda that they want to push, and then they will cloak it in, in Christian language in order to try to get it moved amongst the church. Everybody know Jim Wallace? Anybody heard of Jim Wallace? Everybody heard of him? Okay, he's one of these, and I think he kind of started out as an emergent church guy, which should immediately put up your red flags. Uh, but he's been on George Soros' payroll for years. And he's one of these guys that promotes his stuff. That's the idea. And, and here's the thing. Think about this. Not only are they trying to go for the political, okay, because the political is what ultimately gets laws passed, let's be honest. And if laws are passed and laws become law or, or these bills become law, now there is some sort of validation that makes sin okay because the state has approved it. Who's God in that situation? You see how crazy that is? Okay, so then you also attack the family. Why do you attack the family? Because by its design, it is the preservation of how you continue life. And so notice that people are using such terms as, well, we had to go forward and have corrective surgery. What does the term corrective surgery tell you? God got it wrong the first time. You see what I'm saying? And so notice all of this is filled with language. All of this is trying to get our minds to go in a way. Why? To break down the family. The family is the salt. It is the preservative of the culture. It is the very representation of how God designed society to work. It is the deciding factor that controls the culture. So that's what makes something like this so pertinent, is to have something where these people are meditating upon the truths of Scripture, talking about how they are to lead their families, how God will provide for them in their obedience, how God will discipline them for their disobedience, and simply who he is as God. Is that everybody with me on that? Okay, good. Does anybody have anything they want to say about that before we start looking at the word one? Yes. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, you could definitely look at it and divide it up that way, absolutely. Absolutely. But I would also, did everybody hear what she said? She said we, we, when we were going through this this week, we were looking at it and we saw that the first section dealt with loving God. The second section dealt with obeying God. The third section dealt with serving God. You know what's amazing about that? They're all the same thing. Yes, to love God 
is to obey God. To obey God is to serve God. In fact, here's what's interesting. If you ever want to pull out your Strong's Concordance, right, all you hermeneutes in here, you want to go through and pull out your your Strong's Concordance, and you look for what it is to serve God, and you research that Hebrew word, by and large, you find that that word is synonymous with the word for worship. To serve God is to worship God. Sometimes we think of worship as all hill song, eyes closed, sweaty feeling, palms out, right? That's kind of how we think of worship. That's really not worship. Worship is my life has been set up in such a way as to where what God wants is what comes out of it. That's what it is. It is life change. It is deeming his opinion as paramount above all things. His truth takes precedence over what anyone else would have to say, and his truth is the motivating reason for why what production comes out of me comes out. That's the idea. So yes, it's an excellent observation. Excellent observation. Everybody see Hero Israel. Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is one. What do you do with the Trinity? Well, he's in there. You know, God's the O and Holy Spirit's the N and Jesus is the E, one. Is that is that good interpretive skills? No, no, that's reading into the text, isn't it? How do you deal with a declaration? I mean, think about it. Moses has got Israel gathered together. And imagine he is unfolding this before. See, here's the interesting thing about the Shema. It wasn't previously mentioned to the other generation. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the law as spelled out. But this is Moses dispensing something as a rule of life, the most important prayer you'll have. This is to be the boundaries. These are the white, or sorry, these are the uh, white lines on the sides to keep you from running off in the ditch. This is, this is it. Where, what do we do with the Trinity? The Lord is God. The Lord is one. How do we deal with that? Some people have said, well, here's, here's the reason why they said the Lord is one. Think of where Israel just came from, man. Ra, Marduk, all these other scarab beetle-looking gods and all this crazy stuff, and Pharaoh's God. They can't handle a trinity. Is that true? They would have to deny Genesis 1, wouldn't they, in order to say that. So how do we deal with it? Interesting. Everybody see this word, one. This is the word, if you want to write above it in Hebrew, E-C-H-A-D, Echad, E-C-H-A-D, Echad is how you say it. And that C-H sound is what's known as a guttural in Hebrew, which gives you an opportunity to make gross sounds and sound smart. Echad is the idea. Now, if you guys are in Hebrews class, Hebrew class with Pastor Steve, you know it, right? Anytime you hear somebody speaking gutturals, <laughs> exactly, yeah goes perfect with the fall season. So the idea here is that if you want to know what the idea here is with Ichad, it's the idea of a compound one. That's the idea. It is a compound one. Now let me give you, if you're taking notes and everything, let me walk you through a couple of passages so that you can see what we're talking about when the word Ichad is used, okay? So turn back to Genesis 1. Let's start with the first mention of Ichad. And again, if you have your concordance at home, sit down sometime. Do a word study of this. It's excellent. And here's what I really appreciate about the NASB translation is they got verse 5 of Genesis 1 right. Yes, ma'am. Arlene, what's up? E-C-H-A-D. 
It's like Echad, only you can't say it like that. It's Echad, okay? Long ah, ah, like that, like father. I am your father, that kind of thing, okay? So Echad, okay? <clears throat> it's what? It's a, it's a what? Bless you. It's a pep talk? That's what I'm trying to give. Oh, you're talking Hebrew stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 5. The NASB did a great job here. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Doesn't say that, does it? It says what? One day. And that's exactly what it is. And the word one there is ichad. Okay? Now stop for a second. What makes up the one day? The evening and the morning. The morning and the evening comprised together. It is a compounded one. Does everybody see how that works? Okay, great. Let me give you another example. Turn over to uh, chapter 2. Look at verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become ichad. Exactly. Now, is this made up of two? It is. It's a compounded one. There are two entities involved, but the idea is that it is unified, is the idea. How about this? This is a good one. Turn over to Ezra. There's a good, good, good uh, where is that? All right? Ezra, right before Nehemiah. You guys don't know Ezra? Come on. Ezra. Ezra, chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2, and if you start in chapter 2, verse 1, what do you see? People in numbers, right? Look at all that stuff. It brings back the haunting fears that you have of numbers, right? The book of numbers, right? Why are all these genealogies here? I'm not reading this. Hold on a second. We got something to learn. So notice if you skip down through there, the numbers start in verse 3. Go all the way down, verse 35, there's sons of this and how many there are, and good grief, there's a lot. You want to stay away from verse 13 because that's 666, that must be of the devil. You move on down through there, right? I'm just kidding. But notice down all the way to verse 64. The whole assembly numbered 42,360. Does anybody have a little number next to the word numbered there? A little number one or something. What do you have? What does your say? Together was. In other words, it, in other words, this verse literally reads, the whole assembly together was 42,360. Everybody see that word together? Ichad. Now, how many people is it talking about make up this compounded one? 42,360. Notice it's not just reserved to two that have been brought together in a unified form. It's not just evening, morning. It's not just husband, wife. It's the idea that over 42,000 people are considered ichad, one in that situation. Notice that God is threading the idea of unity, if we were to study it out, from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture and tracing it all the way through. Let me give you one last one. Everybody turn to Ezekiel 37. These are all the fun books, right? Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel so much fun. It is, man. Let's look at verse 15. We'll just get a little running running start here. 
15, 16, 17. Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 15. The word of Yahweh came again to me, saying, And you, son of man. Now, son of man, of course, it's not Jesus. Son of man in the Old Testament, by and large, except for Daniel 7, we see. But context determines the meaning. Son of man is used for Ezekiel by Yahweh all throughout his book. Okay, so that's just a common uh, name that he, he referred to Ezekiel as. Take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel, his companions. And why is that? Is because the kingdom was split at that time. Israel was the northern section. Judah was the southern section. Take two sticks and write Israel, Judah, Israel, Judah. Watch verse 17. Then join them for yourselves, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Anybody want to guess what the word one is here? Ikad, it's the exact same thing. It is the idea of many being unified to be observed and understood as one. That is the exact same word that is used here for the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ikad, made up of many, but yet is one. And this isn't any different from what we see of the tracings of the Trinity at the very beginning of Genesis 1. Now, here's the thing. There is another word used for one, and it means a solitary one, all by itself, alone. So it's not like that Hebrew didn't have the word for. That is, that is a uh, table all by itself over there, not many tables that have been joined together to make one line is the idea. Let me give it to you real quick so you know. Uh, I can't even say it. Y-A-C-H-I-Y-D. Let me spell it for you again. Y-A-C-H-I-Y-D. And let me give you uh, an example. Uh, Go ahead and write it down if you want. We know it so we can just talk about it. Genesis 22, verses 2 and 12. Genesis 22, verses 2 and 12. If you remember... And Yahweh spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Take your son, your only son, and offer him as a burnt offering to me on the mount in the valley of Moriah, which I will show you. Does everybody remember that? Okay. Only, your only son. He brings it up twice. Verses 2 and verses 12. The word only there is that word, and it means your solitary son, your alone son, which is interesting when you think about the fact that Abraham had already had Ishmael. Notice God's perspective on that sinful situation. Yes, ma'am. Y-A-C-H-I-Y-D. Oh. Woohoo! Ikad and Yacher. If you see the C-H, it gives you permission, right? That's good. So Genesis 22, 2 and 12 is a good one. Let me give you another one. Uh, Judges eleven thirty four speaks of a man's only daughter, his solitary daughter. She is alone as the female offspring that he has. Uh, Psalm twenty five sixteen is another one. Proverbs four three. Uh, just give you those those references. Psalm twenty five sixteen and then Proverbs four three gives you the idea of how this is used. Every one of them that you look at, and again, you can use your Strong's to do more if you want to look at it, but it gives you a reference to go of. It means alone, solitary, by itself, one. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, the Judges one is uh, 11, chapter 11, verse 34.
Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Let, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Yes. The liberal debate, the debate of the guys who say that they're evangelical and all this stuff, but they deny the truthfulness of the Bible. The, the, the debate there is the idea of, well, what it's talking about is that we were created actually in the image of many gods, is the idea. In other words, the angels. We were created in the image of the angels. Uh, and what that does is, is, I don't know why they're trying to read that into the text and dispense of the Trinity in that way. Um, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. They make a real heavy argument for going in that direction, but here's the thing. Just as heavy as the argument in that direction, it can be heavy in the direction of, no, actually what we're dealing with here is the Trinity. And there's no reason not to. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, yes, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. There's the Spirit of God, so why would we have any kind of problem? Do we know from John 1 that Jesus is indispensable as far as creation and nothing could be made that was not made without him? Absolutely. So there doesn't seem there seems to be a much greater biblical argument for the conservative inerrancy of Scripture viewpoint than, than that. So, But here's why this is important is because, and we'll wrap, we'll wrap this up. We've only got five minutes, but we'll wrap this up. I know we didn't get very far. Next, next week we will. We'll, we'll dive into the whole idea of four through, through nine there. We believe in something here called plenary inspiration, verbal plenary inspiration. Does anybody remember, if you've been in hermeneutics class, does anybody know what that is when we talk about we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures? And see, all you, all you hermeneutics people are going to make me feel depressed. Say, so, what's that? It's God-breathed, it's inspired, yes. That's the inspiration of Scripture. We're going to say that all Scripture was breathed out by God, that it was uh, Him inspiring Him, revealing truth, and then commissioning certain people to write down what He has revealed. So we have revelation and inspiration. But when we talk about verbal plenary inspiration, what are we talking about? Plenary is the entire body of Scripture, from Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation, we believe that all 66 books, every section of it, every part, it's not just the red letters that are really important to pay attention to. We believe that across the board, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, not including the Apocrypha, are inspired by God equally is the idea. There's not one that is more important or more paramount than others. That's why you have to be careful, and I'm so guilty of this. I think this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Well, right there, I've just denied plenary inspiration. You see what I'm saying? I'm showing a personal preference, and I'm reading my bias into it. What do we mean when we say verbal plenary inspiration? What do we mean by verbal? What's, what's that? No, not spoken. It is the very words that were used in the originals, precisely. Where, it, where the originals contained punctuation, those are inspired by God, right? Every jot and tittle is the idea. Every little minutia of Scripture. God intentionally had Moses say it in this way. Remember, what we're reading here on paper is something that Moses stood up in front of everybody and verbally dispensed for all to hear. And he purposely, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used the word ichad so that they would understand Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is ichad. He is a compounded one, is the idea. He doesn't venture into using this other word. He doesn't touch that. He could have, but under the inspiration of the Scriptures, or sorry, the Holy Spirit, he did not use that, and that is not what is recorded in Scripture. 
See, guys, this is the importance why having something like your strongs and your vines together, doesn't matter where you are in your Christian life, those are just very basic tools that help because the English language just can't capture everything that it really needs to. There have been some Messianic Jews, I think the Tree of Life version uh, is one that you can find out there uh, if you want to go searching for something like that, that have really sought to try to capture as best they can the pictures of, of the Hebrew uh, uh, language that it's trying to communicate. The Jewish mind was so picturesque and everything. It saw things in scenes and very vivid details, those types of things. Well, they're trying to recapture that and use the names for God, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, those types of things, just trying to do that. Uh, so I, I really think that, that if you've never dove into doing word studies and things like that, come to hermeneutics class. Come hang out. Come ask questions. Get with somebody who's in hermeneutics class so they can help you learn how to use. I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you have a Strong's Concordance at home. Man, you got everything that you need. If you don't, you got this, right? Right? Don't lie. You got a phone, right? Some of you, this is your only phone. You don't have a home phone. On your phone, you can go to either the iTunes store or the Google Play store and you can download what's known as MySword. It's an app, MySword. And you can go on there. It'll give you the King James language, but it's got the Strong's numbers next to the word. So all you do is click on there, and it will bring up the concordance for you, and you can go through and search and do your own word studies. If you say, you know what, I don't really use my phone apps or anything like that, but I do have a computer at home, eSword is what it is, E-Sword. It's free. And it's got tons of free stuff to download. And you can go through and do very simple word studies with eSword as well. And you pull all kinds of amazing things out of the scriptures by simply doing those types of studies. So if you have a phone, you want to use an app, MySword, it's free. Or online, computer, eSword. Sound good? Excellent. Are there any questions before we wrap up? Yes. Go for it. There's no silly questions. Only silly people. Translator's choice. It is. Yeah, by and large, a lot of times capitalization is a translator's choice. And here's the reason why we know that is because in the original Greek manuscripts, everything was capitalized. Yeah. Yes. And another difficulty that we face whenever we're dealing with Hebrew, and this is why this is why we have men like Pastor Steve that are insanely smart in this direction, and then we have men like me who know nothing, okay? But the reason is, is because in Hebrew, originally, there were no vowels. And so I always thought it was really interesting if you're running across and you're seeing, you're reading through there and you're like, okay, D, V, D. That's either something I put in a player to watch a movie, which probably wasn't that in Hebrew times, right? Uh, or we're talking about something is divided. That could be concerning, right? That you would divide it because there's no vowels there. Or it's speaking of King David. Everybody see how the vowels matter and how you understand that word? So in, in recent times, the past 500 years or so, I think it is 600 years, they've inserted the vowels in order to, to help. But in the originals, there were no vowels. And everything in Greek was all capitalized. So people have done a lot of work to try to get the Word of God to us in English we understand. That's why when I see things like, well, how come the O isn't capitalized there? I'm not going to fault them for that. You know? There's a part of me that has some righteous indignation against the people who did the ESV because they didn't capitalize the personal pronoun for God. It's Haley, capital H-E. 
you know, and I should be like that. And so I'm in there like scribbling in and real fine print, the H, 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 H. I've written more H's in my ESV translation than anything. But in the NASB includes the H's for you and capitalizes those personal pronouns. That's good and bad because what if the translator's choosing to capitalize a personal pronoun? You find out later it's not really talking about God. There's somebody else in the mix. See what I'm saying? Now you got to go back and take a look at that. How about you going through and, and you're, you're, oh, well, why didn't they do this here? Why didn't they do this? They should have this. Well, no, all of a sudden you realize that you put an H someplace where you didn't need to. I've done that. You know, the only thing that's got more H's in my ESV Bible is whiteout because of all the mistakes I've made marking things. It's true. You mark something, you think you're figuring it out, then you read a little bit more and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's okay. It's okay. It's just part of it. So, but yeah, I wouldn't get hung up on that. I wouldn't get hung up on that. So, good question. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you, God, uh, for the book of Deuteronomy. Pray, God, that you be with us as we read through this, get familiar with this section, move forward, talk about how it affects the family, talk about what the home situation looked like, uh, talk about some of the interesting things that were put in line to remind uh, the children of Israel so that they would always have you before them. Father, help us to keep you always before us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.